Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. Now, as we alluded to in one of our previous episodes, our most previous episode, in <laughs> fact, um, we do want to bring you the history of the Cairo Conservatory. However, as it turns out, it's a bit difficult to find enough information to make that into a whole podcast, at least right now. So if you're interested for the time being, we'll leave that research to you. However, if we do find that information or more more that we can put together, then it's not out of the question. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is no disrespect to Egypt. It's just there really isn't a lot of Egyptian research that focuses on Western classical music. There's just a lot of other things to focus on <laughs> in that area. <laughs> Indeed. So anyway, we're going to bring you something else this time, as you might have noticed by the title of this podcast, and that is a newcomer, Samuel Coolridge Taylor, who is absolutely a different person than Samuel Taylor Coolridge, who is an English poet. Do not get them confused. (laughs) Uh, But we will dive into Coolridge Taylor and look into a lovely bit of his music, which is the four novelettin for string orchestra. So while we might not be able to give you the whole history of the Cairo Conservatory today, (laughs) Samuel Coleridge Taylor is actually a well-known composer, one of the few with African descent. His father was a doctor from Sierra Leone who had been studying in England, but unfortunately had to leave prior to Samuel's birth in 1875. His mother, however, was Anglo-European and came from a musical family. And he was actually named after the aforementioned poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and eventually used some of his poetry as inspiration for his musical works. Samuel first started to learn music when he was gifted a violin at age five. He showed such great proficiency at the instrument that he was allowed to enter the Royal College of Music when he was just 15 years old. And though he loved the violin, he soon also found an affinity for composition, and so he switched tracks. He studied composition under the well-known instructor at the college, Charles Villers Stanford, and other notable students that he studied alongside were Gustav Holst and Ralph von Williams. You should go back and listen to our episodes on those guys as well. And finally, he was also praised by Edward Elgar and was actually recommended by Elgar to write some of his early successful works for a prominent English music festival. Now remember... Samuel Coleridge Taylor was of African descent, and unfortunately, even in merry old England, Coleridge Taylor did experience racial discrimination. Apparently, he was abused by another student at the school. And luckily, though, there is some good in the world, and his teacher, Stanford, protected him and helped him stand up to the abuser. Stanford is quoted to have said that Coleridge Taylor had, quote, much more music in his little finger than you do in the whole of your body. We also found one article suggesting that during the time of Victorian England, people of African descent were actually on better footing than Catholics or those in the Jewish ethnic groups, and thus he could apparently fly a little under the radar. 
which I guess is good for him, but too bad that there is a radar that he needed to fly underneath. Coleridge Taylor's musical style is quite sophisticated. He was able to master the British romantic style with ease, and his style could easily fit in with his peers that we have talked about before. However, he also drew on African and African-American styles as well. He was first introduced to these styles through a touring group from America called the Fisk Jubilee Singers. Perhaps his best-known work is the cantata Hiawatha's Wedding Feast that is based on the Longfellow poem The Song of Hiawatha. Now, as he gained more recognition in Britain, he was also gaining fame in the United States. The Coleridge Taylor Society was formed to promote his music in America, and eventually the society was able to fund several American tours for Coleridge Taylor. And here he gained wide acclaim. He got to conduct the Marine Band and was invited to perform at the White House by then-President Teddy Roosevelt himself. During one tour, he even met Gustav Mahler, who was at that time conducting the New York Philharmonic. And from then on, due to his recognition on the three American tours he did take, he was occasionally dubbed the Black Mahler due to his musical prowess. <laughs> and back in Europe, Coleridge Taylor taught and conducted at the Trinity College of Music. However, he passed well before his time. In 1812, he developed a severe case of pneumonia and due to disease complications that were likely exacerbated by stress and overwork, he did sadly pass at the age of 37. So now, let's get to music. No more dead composers, just their music. <laughs> the Four Novelettin was composed in 1903 after Coleridge Taylor had secured his fame in England and abroad. And this piece is a great example of Coleridge Taylor's classical training. The name Novelettin is taken from the works of Robert Schumann, and essentially meaning short pieces that either directly reference a piece of literature or tell a very definitive story. However, the music isn't just about traditional European sounds. Rather than being compared to Mahler, a more apt comparison may actually be to Dvorak, who famously incorporated the African-American spiritual tradition into his Western-style music, of course, in the New World Symphony and other pieces. So let's listen in to the novelette. The first thing you'll notice is that this piece, ostensibly for string orchestra, also includes percussion, the tambourine and the triangle to be exact. This is an optional part, but it definitely adds a bit of unique flair to what is otherwise very standard instrumentation. And you also notice right off the bat, the first movement doesn't seem to have a defined time signature until a few measures in, where we finally get the feeling of the 3-8 time, a great triple meter. After a bit of a rugged introduction, the first theme of the movement is actually very graceful. is also a complementary second theme here in a minor key. Even though the meter and tempo haven't changed, these 16th notes sound a bit more agitated, and that is because they are staccato rather than legato.
And while that may sound like an obvious observation, articulations really do make or break how a piece sounds. Coleridge Taylor very purposefully marked the desired articulations in the music to allow for maximum contrast. Indeed, and now listen as we meld the smooth and staccato sounds. You can so clearly hear that the low and the high voices are playing different statements, again, thanks to the changes in articulation. The first movement is in ABA form, meaning we have a contrasting middle section. And to denote this, we first have a key change and then a melodic change. This section really has the sound of Dvorak's string quartets. It's very lush, with the ethereal melody drifting along, floating on top of a very busy, yet legato, bassline. Now in this section also, we get a great example of syncopation. Of course, a syncopated melody is a bit of a hallmark of the African-American musical style that would eventually morph into blues and jazz. Now, though this part of Coleridge Taylor's music can't really be called jazzy, <laughs> it definitely showed the influences and the musical idiom that Coleridge Taylor was trying to channel. And then after a bit of modulation to calm us down, the A section returns. marked larghetto, which usually implies a slow, possibly dirge-like tune. However, thanks to the use of 16th notes, the slow tempo does move along at quite a clip. Also of note, the bass line has brought in the syncopated rhythms right from the start. The first melody of this second movement is surprisingly quaint. It's in a nice C major key and really utilizes that C major scale. However, there are some cheekily interesting parts thrown in with passing tone accidentals. For example, the chromatic movement here to transition between phrases. However, a little bit later in a transition section, all we get is chromatics. This part sounds like the strings are just melting away. To achieve this effect, Coleridge Taylor is yet again employing syncopation. The first violin is just playing dotted 8th 16th rhythms, while the second violins fall into a 16th note 8th note 16th note rhythm, essentially allowing the second violin to play in the gaps of the first violin. 
Also, both violin sections are playing chromatic leaps that are sixths apart, which is not the most expected of harmonies. When the melody returns, there is now a counter melody in the cello that comes to the fore while the violins chatter away in the background. This second movement is also written in ABA form, so now for the contrasting B section. This changes the time signature from 2-4 now to 6-8. It's now marked Allegretto, with the strong downbeats playing the same speed as the previous slower eighth notes, making a natural transition. Again, we have a lovely floating melody. Coleridge Taylor was really good at writing interesting melodies. This melody sounds like it took more inspiration from England rather than America. Here's that famous Scotch snap that we've talked about in relation to the Highland bagpipes in the past. The orchestration of this section is quite nice. The downbeats of the melody are played by just the first violin, but then the whole orchestra joins in on the second beat to play in harmony, which gives depth to that melodic line. And then, to help transition back to the A section, from the triple feel of the 6-8 section, the bass line switches from playing two groups of three to two groups of two, essentially slowing down the eighth note feel until we return to the original meter. Now the third movement is titled Valse. So what meter will that be in? That's right, three, four. <laughs> Yay! And right from the start, it sounds much more melancholy. This movement embodies much more of the African-American style than the previous movements, with the melody emulating more of a vocal style. It's also giving Porgy and Bess vibes, which obviously that work was written a lot later, but you know, they're alluding to a similar cultural sound. Yes, indeed. Now, we also hear the patterns in this movement, too. Coleridge Taylor doesn't seem to be as big on patterns and sequencing as some composers we've looked at, but he does use them to great effect here to create and release tension. And we also hear the great melody building of Coleridge Taylor again in this movement. Here, listen closely behind the first violin melody for a wonderful counter melody in the viola. However, the B section of this movement, of course, takes a complete 180. It's almost jubilant in nature, really helped along by the tambourine in the background 
which gives it a carnival vibe. And there's a lot more drama around tempo in this movement as well. The strings here are tumbling forward as they gain tempo momentum. And here in unison, it sounds as if they are marching to a halt. And we have mentioned a challenging rhythmic feature in the past called polyrhythm. This is when there are duples and triples being played together, essentially two different beat divisions all at the same time. And though this would be much more difficult for a soloist such as a pianist, that would have both hands playing a different rhythm, either eighth notes versus triplets, something like that, it is still tricky for an orchestra. Coleridge Taylor does employ this technique here, and rather than it feeling confusing, it really just adds a sweeping interest to the transition section. Now here's one instance where Coleridge Taylor just breaks out one melodic motif instead of the whole melody. Through different bass accompaniment and key changes, he's able to move this little measure-long snippet through a series of emotions. the final movement with tempo marking allegro molto this has a stern sounding introduction with the strings primarily playing in unison finally comes in, it is accented by octave jumps and an overall downward harmonic trajectory measure to measure. This melody almost has a slight resemblance to a pomp and circumstance march of Elgar. However, Coleridge Taylor does take a turn for the unexpected. Here, he makes a quick key modulation from D major to D flat major, which is just a chromatic step down, but it sounds like a big shift. Up until now, Coleridge Taylor has been showing us the elegant and powerful sides to his composition style. Now we get to hear something cuter. We have some sparse orchestration at first, with violins just playing repeated 16th notes on downbeats, with the lower strings playing pizzicato offbeats before we transition into a new section. And the new section is kind of cute too, or maybe it's cheeky. The staccato 16th notes behind the more flowing viola melody is just more absurd than the writing up till this point. Now here is a short contrasting section that's not 
quite long enough to be considered a B-section, but it's definitely different from what we've heard up till then. So it technically keeps the same tempo that we had before, but it sounds slower because instead of dealing with 16th notes primarily, this melody is made up of just quarter notes, so it sounds like it is four times as slow. Later in the piece, we do lose the cuteness a bit. In this development section, the strings are all playing in fairly low registers, and similar to the introduction, they are mostly in unison. It gives the effect of just pushing forward and powering through. After another brief journey to the slower sounding section, Coleridge Taylor begins to amp up the excitement once again, this time by gradually increasing the primary note speed from quarters to eighths to sixteenth notes, with the sixteenth note runs eventually sequencing downward. ending of this piece is rather showy. First, there are downward lines with a molto rallentando, essentially bringing the music to a halt at high tension. Then the orchestra jumps into a presto section that is essentially the melody played unreasonably fast, <laughs> ending with many different inversions of a tonic chord. <laughs> you agree that this piece really really is good like it's yeah, solid absolutely. writing it is it's interesting it's not generic like sure we've heard string pieces before and we've heard english pieces and it fits into those categories quite well it, it does what it set out to do but it definitely has surprises and coleridge taylor definitely has a unique voice that is not really heard from the other english composers he does, and he has such a breadth of stylistic uh, range as well, which which is showcased very well in this piece. Um, and I think that sometimes he might be—I mean, just consider in the bio in the biography section that we did earlier, just who his contemporaries were. You know, Stanford, Holst, von Williams, Mahler, right? Even if you are a composer of a ca of the caliber of Coleridge Taylor, when you think of you know, late 19th, earliest 20th century English composers, he's probably not going to be the first one you think of. And if this podcast is your first choice when it comes to classical music history and knowledge and a little fun thrown in here and there, <laughs> do go ahead and please review us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. Yes, Spotify. Where I can't Spotify. talk right now. Plus Spotify <laughs> or wherever it is that you are consuming your podcast. And if you know of anyone else who would love to hear about Samuel Coleridge Taylor, which I think is everyone, then do share <laughs> this podcast and our other great episodes, of which there are a couple with them. <laughs> yeah, just a couple. 
just a couple. What is this? 174, 175? 175. There are oh a couple goodness. out of that that are... Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Marching, steadily marching on, slowly but surely. <laughs> and until episode 176, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The Four Noveletten for String Orchestra was performed by the U.S. Air Force Strings, conducted by Larry H. Lang. You can find the Coffeehouse on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. Thank you.